0: unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Kirsten Powers. Her new book is called Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. In it, this CNN senior political analyst and USA Today columnist offers a path to navigating the toxic division in our culture without compromising our convictions and emotional well-being. Based on her experiences as a journalist during the Trump era, interviews with experts and research on what leads people to actually change their minds. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Kirsten Powers. Kirsten,
1: welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation.
0: This is so interesting for me because I've I've been, you know, aware of you and been co- quite frankly, a fan for years. And so like, I'm used to seeing you on cable news or something or on uh, at some television platform. Yeah, not, platform. not sitting so,
1: on my bed in a tank top.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you look fantastic. It's a great look. Solid look. Solid look. Yeah. In fact, it'd be a good look for, uh, for, for TV news panels. I think you should kind of yeah. go a little more. Yeah, casual.
1: I should so, start doing that broadcasting from my bed.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, that's like the COVID look. It's COVID chic.
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, I've just heard that for podcasts, you want to have lots of pillows around you and lots of stuff to keep it like not reverberating, I guess. So
0: this is true. You're a true student of the media. I am. I'm
1: a very good student. I'm so I'm being a very good girl here.
0: (laughs) I like it. I, you sound very good. You sound, you sound excellent. So I, I want you've, um, you've written a wonderful book wonderful book called Saving Grace, great subtitle, speak your truth, stay centered and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts, who we all have those people in our lives. But I want to ask you, before we get into the content of the book, I am just, I am fascinated by adult conversion experiences to anything, like, you know, uh, whatever it is, if it's political, if if it's religious, if it's, um, you know, ideological, so I think it's one of the most difficult things for adults is being able to change their mind on mm-hmm. something. And you you're somebody who's really who's had a significant adult religious pilgrimage. Uh and I just wondered, you know, if you could talk a little bit about your and you and you've also I guess had, you know, kind of a uh, a pilgrimage not so much ideologically but uh, around how you interact with others ideologically. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your kind of spiritual and intellectual pilgrimage and and what that entailed and how it came about.
1: Well, that's a long story. (laughs) I'll do my best to summarize it. But yeah, I think I have changed a lot in my life, which I think if you're doing life right, you will change a lot, actually. Uh, As much as we hear that people can't change, that actually has not been my experience. Um, For one thing, people change just as they get older right? They just uh, will change, their personalities will change, they'll start to see things differently than they saw when they were young and those kinds of things. So I've, I've had that happen to me, which I think is just a natural occurrence with most people. But I think the spiritual transformation was pretty radical and unusual. And in the sense that I was in my late 30s, I was living in Manhattan in a very secular environment, my family's very secular. My parents are, you know, were professors and archaeologists, um, and I you, you,
0: you grew up in Alaska, Yeah, I right? grew up
1: in Alaska. Yes. And um and so I wasn't really, you know, when you think of somebody discovering Christianity and having a radical transformative um, experience, you don't usually think of New York City, at least Manhattan. Right. That's not usually where that's going to happen. And so it was a very unlikely occurrence and it did really shift my worldview. I really did go from being I kind of went back and forth from being an atheist to an agnostic. That was sort of my that's about as far as I moved on that spectrum. Sometimes I would be like, well, maybe I don't know. And I was very anti-religion and I had no interest in it. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was lacking something. None of when things. you say
0: anti-religion, I mean, do you, so you just you thought religion was a a toxic or negative influence yes. in the culture at yes. large? Is that what you mean?
1: Yes. And honestly, I'm kind of coming around to thinking that again to a certain extent, but for different reasons. Uh, I just thought it was, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I thought it was kind of dumb. I, I thought it was for people who were sort of, not that smart, or maybe weak, Uh, just, it just, it just was anti-intellectual. That was sort of how I looked at it. Now, I also didn't know very much about Christianity or religion, I'm only really going to talk about Christianity, because that's the only religion that I really know, Uh, so I can't speak to other religions. And so I saw it being also very toxic when it came to the cultural issues and it just wasn't for me. And I saw it as being problematic and I really didn't want anything to do with it. And I didn't really want to be around other people who were religious and I wasn't for the most part. So I, I did have this experience, like I said, it's it's a pretty long story, but I did have this experience where I started attending a church with a boyfriend and ended up kind of opening myself up to this and having a a pretty profound spiritual transformation.
0: Was this Redeemer in New York City?
1: That was Redeemer, yes, yes.
0: Tim Tim Keller, an exceptional yes. preacher. I mean, really one of the m- most notable intellectual preachers in the country. Right.
1: And, I, and of course, so Redeemer is an evangelical church. I did not know that when I went there. When my boyfriend said it was Presbyterian, I thought, oh, mainline Protestant. Like, I, I went to an Episcopal church growing up, so I thought it was the same thing, and Didn't really want to go, but I kind of went for him. And what I learned later, as you know, Redeemer is a seeker church, so all of the preaching was actually directed at people like me. So people who are total cynics who did not thought this was dumb. um, And and Tim really unpacked it in a way that showed that it's it's not dumb. Like even if you don't believe in it, that you know that there is actually uh, a lot there, a lot more there than I realized. And so, um, yeah. And so that's how it started. And it put me on this journey that is still continuing, frankly, uh, you know, where I, where I ultimately kind of moved away from the white evangelical world. I converted to Catholicism and in 2015, um, I'm, you know, I I feel like I'm still continuing. I talk about in the book, the kind of tension that I have still with religious institutions, uh, because they can be so problematic and harmful and hurt so many people.
0: What did Augustine say? The church is a whore, but she's still my mother. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, part of, part of my journey, really my journey through trying to practice grace was embracing, moving away from this binary way of thinking, which is, well, the church does bad things, therefore it's all bad, right? Right. Uh, Religion does bad things. Therefore religion's all bad. So moving away from that and saying they do bad things and there's also a lot of wonderful things that they do and there's a lot of wonderful teachings here that are very valuable. And so how do I, how do I navigate that in a way where I'm not giving up? As I say in the book, I really rely on the Christian wisdom tradition where we're not throwing that out because of the behavior of religious leaders right? So I think that that's kind of where I am now. And and it's, it's still a struggle. It's very hard sometimes when you you think, you know, I'm Catholic and look at the things that the Catholic church has done or is doing. And, um, and so I'm, I'm in that tension, that sort of both and tension of saying, I I don't like that. And I also think there are a lot of wonderful things about the Catholic church.
0: I'm curious as someone who, again, was sort of part of, um, you're part of a kind of mainstream liberal political establishment that often is, um, um. There are notable exceptions, but um, but often is sort of um. You know, we've got like a binary, like you talk about in your book, the problem of of binary, you know, this or that kind of thinking, and and we do kind of have the sort of pro religion party and the and the not religion party. I'm curious. It, when you kind of came out to your friends in the non-religion party and you say, hey, you know what? I believe in Jesus now. I'm a Christian. Like what, I mean, what, what were the, what were conversations like? I mean, how did people respond to that and, 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 and receive that?
1: Well, my white friends thought that it was insane and were very concerned and my black friends thought it was fine <laughs> because they actually, as I, came to learn actually did believe the same things. Like my black friends actually did go to church and they did. I can remember actually calling one of them and saying, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And he said, yeah, I do. And I was like, really? <laughs> Cause I just thought that's so weird. Like I know somebody who thinks that. And so it was, it, it sort of depended on who it was, but of course I was in New York city. So a lot of my friends were also Jewish, but not religious. Right. And so, you know, they also just thought, well, this is kind of crazy and, and concerning. And and so I think that that, I, you know, but it's not like um, I don't know. I don't feel like I was punished for it or anything like that. But what I would say now is I think it's very different, actually. And I, I think millennials have a very different attitude about it. And I think millennials actually. So I'm Gen X. Gen X is just cynic cynical to the nth degree right so it's just they're just a no to pretty much everything and so i do feel like it used to be the kind of thing where if you said it, people would be like whoa that's really weird but i don't really feel like it's like that anymore i feel like people are like okay that's your thing as long as you're not hurting anybody um okay and so i think now look if i was a conservative white evangelical who was you know, saying things about gay people and, and those kinds of things, then I would have a problem, but that's not about religion. That's about the fact that, that people think that that's oppressive and they don't want to harm gay people. Right. So it's not, so just having a faith, I don't think really anymore is something that I, or, you know, or maybe I'm just so nerd to it that I don't notice it, but I haven't felt that people Find it anything
0: but kind of interesting. It's interesting. I think we're in a a culture that struggles with religious literacy, and where people's people's religious and theological vocabulary. I mean, you know, if let's say this was like the nineteen, I think the early the highest point for church attendance in the country was the early nineteen sixties, and at that point, even if people didn't go to church they would have had some basic familiarity with Western religious concepts and things. But that's not the case now. And so you write a book with a word that is used a lot, but probably misunderstood. Why the, a book about grace? I mean, what what is, it, what is it about the term, the concept, where you felt like you needed to write this book?
1: Well, I felt I needed to write this book because I came to a point where I recognized that that is the thing that's missing from our culture in the way we interact with each other. And that is something that was frankly missing from my life as well. And it wasn't the way I was interacting with other people. And so when I set out to write this book, I had this intuition that grace was the issue, but I honestly didn't understand how much of an issue it was until I really got into the book. And... And, when I, and by grace, what I mean is I do use the Christian paradigm of unmerited favor, but we usually think of that in terms of our relationship to God, right? It's, whereas I'm using it in the context of person to person. And I think a lot of people think that grace just means being nice, right? Or being a doormat, not really challenging things, just kind of rolling over. When in fact, that's that's not it at all. And if you apply the idea of unmerited favor it's just giving the other person the benefit of the doubt cutting them a little slack and recognizing that they have a right to not be you and 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 by not being you they have a right to not be you and not be demonized and dehumanized and you know and ostracized and all these other things and so i think that if we can get into that mindset it can radically change the way we interact with each other it doesn't mean we stop saying what we believe it doesn't mean we don't we stop challenging problematic behavior or harmful systems but it does affect how we do that and it does affect how we feel when we're doing that because I was miserable I don't know about anybody else but I was exhausted and I was angry not even angry I was rage-filled
0: and I was did did, did you know you were miserable because I mean I, I think oftentimes when people are miserable it's only in retrospect that you see how, did you, were you aware of how miserable you were or was it something that in retrospect, like, wow, I, I'm in a really different place than I was.
1: I became aware. So I think that's a great point. I don't think for a lot of the time I was, but then I did hit this wall in early 2019 and I just realized this, I, I am miserable and I am, and I am, my behavior is not aligned with my values. It is not aligned with what I say I believe uh, that I believe you should love your neighbor that I believe you should love your enemies. Right. My behavior was not even remotely aligned with that. And so I also had an added, I mean, I don't know if I can call it a help because it was so miserable, but sometimes I think if it hadn't happened, I might not have gone on this journey is that I had chronic pain and chronic um, fatigue. So I was suffering physically. And so that I couldn't ignore that. I just, I got to this point where I was like, why am I so exhausted? Why am I in so much physical pain, uh, emotional pain? I had anxiety, I had chronic anxiety. And I just realized like, I'm off course. I'm definitely off course. There's just no denying it. and And I have to get back on course. And I think I'm off course. In the same way, our culture is off course. It, it, the, the two things are, were very similar, and so I just felt like I need to I need to do better. I need to figure out a way to not feel this way and to make a more positive contribution to society. And I want to help people, and I think this will be good for our culture.
0: I mean, this it's interesting because it's oftentimes, I think, where um, where, I mean, in the broken places, it's in the cracks mm-hmm. that the light shines in, right? And, and is that, was that your experience? I mean, because this is after you've had some religious enlightenment and a conversion, and yet you're still, you're still on the way, you're still on the journey, right? You you hadn't arrived yet. And and it sounds like this, um, the real, you know, unearthing the real meaning of grace. I mean, did you, did you need to suffer first to get it?
1: I guess, I mean, certainly I did, I, I don't know a lot of people who have breakthroughs without suffering and it's an unfortunate thing, but you, you just, there's just very few people who are like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me how to do it and I'll do it. (laughs) You know, it's like you have to experience it yourself. But, but I think that I also, part of what was making me so miserable also was how alienated I felt from Christianity, American Christianity. And so that was definitely contributing to it. And I also think that the way we are taught about grace, typically in, in at least again, I can only speak to the United States and, and you know, churches and this, this would apply in a Catholic church or a, or a Protestant church is that we just pray and we're just good little Christians. And we, fast and we go to church and then we'll just be filled up with the love of God and it'll just pour out into the world. And we'll just, if I want to have grace for people, it'll just pour out of me because I will have be so saturated in God's grace. Well, you know, spoiler alert, that does not, that's not how it happens because if it it might happen that way for some people, I I have yet to meet that person, but I'm going to allow for the possibility they exist. But we have there are a lot of practical things you can do to get to the place where you can start interacting with people with grace. Um, and that's what I really try to outline in this book. And until you do those things, it's going to be very hard for you to, to offer grace. What I just described to you is called spiritual bypassing. It, it's magical thinking around all you have to do is ask God and you have it and it's done. And it's it's just not how people change. Now people do have Radical spiritual experiences and pour all the alcohol down the drain. I'm not saying that doesn't happen But I think if you really want to change fundamentally how you're seeing the world You're gonna have to probably deal with your issues and that's what I had to do because What I discovered was I had some trauma that hadn't been integrated That made it impossible for me to not be judgmental And I don't mean making a judgment. I mean like looking down on people contemptuously being angry at them for not being me all those things which are the opposite of Grace
0: you needed villains right yeah you needed I needed bad guys
1: I had to find the monster yeah. yeah and it's like and unfortunately that's the way a lot of us are and especially because we live in this binary system it's right down the middle of Democrats versus Republicans you know it's the you know even our religious systems I think you know much more on the conservative side are very binary either you're in or you're out you got to believe these things or you're not a Christian, all these, these systems that are constantly creating monsters for you add in that I'm already wired because of my specific kind of trauma to see that, then of course I'm going to be reacting to people like this. And so there was a lot of spiritual work that I had to do. I mean, discovering Richard Rohr was really the first step on this journey Uh, and discover and, and reading all his books and doing a, you know, going and seeing him and I was in a little group and that's what you
0: have to take the Enneagram.
1: Oh, I love the Enneagram.
0: (laughs) What is your Enneagram type? I'm an eight. (laughs) (laughs) Challenger. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: And so, well, and that was one of the things when I realized I was an eight, I was completely filled with shame and horror because it was everything that I didn't want to be.
0: I, I think, I think that if you're not, if you're doing the Enneagram, right. You're always filled with shame and heart when you figure
1: the type That's out. That's what they say. Because you're so you looking back and you can't deny it. You're like, when they say, Oh, guess you you get very self-righteous and judgmental, it's like, mm, yeah.
0: I <laughs> read when I read Ruhr's I, I um, book on the Enneagram and I figured i type out everything. I actually took the book and threw it in the woods.
1: <laughs> what number are you?
0: Uh, I'm I'm the worst type. Um, a one, uh, a four, a, a four. four. I thought you were great. At Which of course, a four. Actually. I don't think it's, fours it's, are the worst. Uh well, but we're so narcissit. The fours are so individualistic. Like, oh, we, we have to be the worst type. We're the yeah, worst. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Because I don't think I I think ones are much harder to deal with. Um, not that there's a bad type or anything like that. But I actually thought I was a one for a while, and um, Ian Crone is the one who helped me figure out I was an eight, and it was a, it was very similar where. He's with, I've as, I've, had, I've interviewed
0: Ian Cohen. Nice. Yeah, smile.
1: he's amazing. And as he started to say, have you ever thought that maybe you might be, and I was like, if he says eight, <laughs> I'm going to lose it. <laughs> and so, and then he's like, you might be an eight. <laughs> and so I had a hard time it, for a couple of weeks. I was just like, it's not right. It can't be. And then I finally realized it was, and then honestly, it was very empowering. Uh, When I finally thought, you know, this is this is who I am and and I need to just kind of own it. And uh, and once I did deal with my trauma and really integrated my trauma, I just had a lot more capacity for I just had a much more generous spirit and honestly, just more capacity for grace. I, I once I wasn't because our reactions to trauma are meant to keep us safe. So my judging and sorting and good guys and bad guys my brain was doing that to make me feel safe and once i didn't need to do that once i felt safe i didn't have to do that anymore and so i was able to start seeing people with more grace now that doesn't make it easy it's just it just gives me the capacity to do it the other things that i talk about in the book are what helps using boundaries instead of demonizing people figuring out what you're a yes to and what you're a no to and just saying, no, you don't have to demonize the person. You don't have to take on all their stuff. Um, you know, just say no. And then, like I say, figure out what your yes is and go do something that will actually change the situation because you yelling at somebody is, I can just guarantee you is not going to change whatever you're concerned about.
0: Yeah. Your stuff on boundaries in the book is excellent. I, I remember a minister telling me years ago, he's a good friend of mine actually. Um, he said, "The number so part of the spiritual life. The essence of it is learning where you end and the world begins." Yes, and that's what I got out of reading your the stuff you, on boundaries. where like basically like the, the world is out here, and I'm me, and I don't have to internalize every battle. I don't have to be emotionally invested in every conflict. That I I can take space away, and be me. I mean, and, and this it, it sounds like that. an ability to do that, to give yourself space. It it was very healing for you.
1: It was, especially because going back to the Enneagram 8 thing, the Enneagram 8 is the challenger, and they're known for being the people who speak up for the underdog and the disenfranchised. And so I was always running into every fire like I was there to save the world, right? And instead of recognizing that I actually actually can't save the world. Let's just start there. (laughs) Um, and that I don't have to run into every single fire that there are other ways to, to seek change, but perhaps most importantly, I don't have to suffer to prove that I care. And I think I had some idea and maybe it's tied up in Christianity somehow. I don't know, but that if I wasn't actually suffering that I didn't care if I wasn't actually up at night worrying and feeling bad and all these other things that I didn't care. And when my therapist said to me, you know, you don't have to suffer. You can, you can care, but not take on all that energy and all that negativity. And I just really was like, you can, I, how I don't understand. Whereas now I a hundred percent get it. And I'm just like, I'm so boundaryed. I mean, there's like a wall, and i just and i'm when i say boundary i don't even mean from other people i am boundaryed from social media i am boundaryed from the news i just i'm very careful about what i let into my system because i want to have the capacity to do the things that i want to do and not be all activated by the bad behavior of other people
0: i'm i'm interested though, as a, as a public figure and someone who I mean, you write a book; you've got to promote it, right? That's the name of the game, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you stay away from social media and stuff? Because don't you have to sort of play that game to get ideas? I mean, it's it's a sort of catch twenty two, right? I mean, you you want to be boundaryed, uh, but to sell the book about boundaries, you got to be a little unboundaryed. I mean, how do you how do you juggle that?
1: Well, what I do is i I have already created a system in my mind about what I'm going to allow in, and so. I am totally open to people disagreeing with me. I don't have any problem with that. And, and in fact, I like to engage with people who disagree with me. What I won't engage with is contempt or gaslighting or any of these other unhealthy behaviors. So if somebody's doing that, I mute them or I block them. And I block them if they're a troll, which a lot of them are. I get targeted by a lot of trolls. And if they're just a just a regular person who's being toxic, I just mute them. And I just don't deal with it. And I I just, it's just like, it's not even happening, honestly. Um, And then I interact with the people who are um, interested in interacting in a healthy manner, even if we're disagreeing. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I've been on my Facebook page and I've had some disagreements with people and they've been very civil and I like that. And I think they like it too, but there's always the people that come on and, you know, try to make trouble. And so I just... I just don't deal with them. But when I'm not promoting the book, I'm not on, I'm mostly not on social media. So if I spent, if I spent an hour on social media during a regular like week, I would be surprised. So one of the first things I did was get step back from social media because I was spending a lot of time on Twitter. And, um, and it's, and it is, as I write about in the book, it's, it's not an accident that that we get agitated and then start acting like teenagers because that's what they want us to do. Like, it is designed to do that. It's designed to get you activated and amped up and get your brain, like, in this crazy loop where next thing you know, you're, like, attacking people or what, you know, it's... it's you can't go on there and be surprised when that happens. So you have to figure out a way to... to Whatever it is for each person, it's different for everybody. Someone can go on for five minutes a day. Some people can go on for half an hour a day, although I don't really know how a person goes on there for half an hour a day without, you know, being agitated. So I think we just have to be realistic about about what social media is designed to do and how they they know how our brains work and they're tapping into that and that our brains work against us so we have to be aware of that and we have to be careful about what we let into our bodies and into our brains.
0: I, I, I'm really interested because, you know, you talk in the book about some interactions you had with Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly and and Megan Kelly. And I, I, You know, it's funny because I'm a fairly, you know, I, I probably over the years have watched too much cable news. And so I remember some of these, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, like, yeah. I, I mean, this is, I, I, you know, what were interactions like after, it, it, are, are, are you friends with all of those folks? No, I mean, are, are, no, okay. No, no, no. Um, are you friends with any of them? No.
1: And I never, really? yeah, and I never was.
0: Okay. Interesting, okay. Yeah.
1: yeah, so, you know, I think that I was friendly you know, like if I went when I went on the set, we'd chit chat or something like that. But I w- we were never friends and never did anything with them really outside of work or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it was I mean, I you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, I, I don't think that I could have done it if I hadn't been so unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy, because part of my trauma response also, as I learned as I was, you know, over the last couple of years working on this book is to dissociate. So I was able to kind of just dissociate where you just don't really feel anything. And I just could very clearly just respond to it. Uh, But it was very unhealthy. It's just not, it's not really a normal way to spend your life. I don't think (laughs) fighting with people on TV.
0: (laughs) That's interesting to me though, because you you were at Fox news for a little while. I mean, Oh yeah. A long time. And so, so that's, that's be interesting to be having these kind of intense discussions with people that you're not, um, that you don't really have a, 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 a personal relationship or that that, 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 did you like them or, or, um,
1: did I like them? I don't, yeah, I think I liked some of them. I some of them I didn't like, but. I also had, that was, so part of my life was, were these were these primetime kind of, you know, these shows that were very, where things could get kind of out of hand. But then I had another part, which was actually more of my life there, which was in the news division. So it would be being on Brett Baer's panel on special report, or it would be being on Fox News Sunday, or doing news coverage, you know, special events and stuff like that. And with those people, yes, I, I, they were my friends. I mean, I consider Steve Hayes a friend. Charles Krauthammer, I considered a friend. George. What Will. a lovely guy. Yeah. Krauthammer
0: seemed like a really yeah great wonderful guy.
1: people, wonderful, you know. And so I, so there, yes, I did absolutely, and I still consider, I, you know, the, you know, I still consider Steve a friend. I still, you know, consider George Will a friend, and um, so it's so yes, like in that context, there it wasn't crazy at all. it was, we would disagree, but it was very, it was respectful and it was, um, reality based. Right. So versus I think what we've kind of moved into now, which I think I don't watch Fox very much, but the little that I watch, it doesn't feel very reality based to me.
0: Yeah. It it seems like there's two Foxes, right? There's the news division, like where people like Brett bear and Chris Wallace and, and some of the, I forget the name of the woman, uh, who's the national security correspondent she seems, she's usually quite good yeah. um you know there's kind of like the, it seems like there's the news division and then the commentary division and it seems like they're radically different cultures
1: they're not even the same i mean when i was there they weren't even the same it was like they weren't the same company so so i but i i existed in both worlds so i i was sort of you know but i probably spent more time in the news division so i think that's also why i was able to kind of handle it because those conversations in the news division were you know they were fine. there was nothing we were disagreeing, but there was nothing really problematic about them
0: yeah I, I i i'm I'm curious um you you've you've talked multiple times and you talk in the book about trauma and its connection to grace. can you say a little bit about the trauma that that kind of led you to grace like like the source of the trauma
1: well I think there's I have childhood trauma that's not anything spectacular, but it is trauma in the sense that, you know, my parents got divorced when I was five and this was in the early seventies. This was way before conscious uncoupling and people were, you know, it just, it wasn't handled very well.
0: Yeah. yeah it was. And it was, it made you more of a standout. If you, yeah. could, if your parents get divorced at five now, that's probably half the kids. Yeah. Statistically, that's yeah. half the kids on the playground.
1: Yeah, almost. That yeah. wasn't half the
0: kids on the playground. It wasn't even
1: ten percent of the kids. Right. I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, very conservative, small town mentality. Right. So that was so. Yes, there was that, and there was, and there was just the fact it just wasn't handled well. And I now know from what I've learned about trauma is that some, what makes it trauma it's it's not it's it's basically person specific. It's not event specific specific. So you can't just say divorce is a trauma because it's not for everybody. Because if your parents sit down and talk to you about it and they say, this is hard and we're going to talk about it and we're still a family and I, we, you know, we respect each other and they never badmouth each other. And they, when you're upset, they listen to you and they talk about it it's going to probably be like a memory. It might be a sad memory. It might not be a sad memory, but it will have been integrated because you will have been seen in that trauma. And if, but, but what happened with me and most kids back then was it wasn't because nobody knew how to deal with it. So it just was announced and never discussed again. And so for me, it was like my family had just been ripped apart. I didn't understand why it was, you know, I was five, which is, you know, in terms of childhood development, it's not a great time for your parents to split up. So I had that. Um, But the trauma that I found that was pretty directly related to most of my problems actually wasn't that it was a series of deaths in my family when I was in my mid thirties and that I was able to trace back to my chronic fatigue and my pains starting then. And I, um, my father died suddenly when I was 35, he was 61, just dropped out of a heart attack. Um, and then exactly a year later, my grandmother, who I was very, very close to died. And then right around that time, my stepfather was diagnosed with liver cancer. He died within a couple of years. You know, my mom's best friend, who was like a second mother died of bone cancer. So it was a series of, of deaths that just hit me really hard. Uh, and also I was pretty young, right? It's not, that's not what most of your peers are experiencing in their mid thirties. And I didn't have really the capacity to metabolize it. And I never did metabolize it. And I never really was seen in that. And so it wasn't until I went, I went to an intensive, um, uh, therapy uh, retreat about a week long. That's when we figured out that's what it was. And I was able to integrate that. And then, like three weeks later, all of my symptoms were gone. And I just kept kind of expanding from there. Wow. Yeah. It was, it wow. was pretty wild. And then I also had started doing regular therapy and was, you know, just becoming more conscious, honestly, of a lot of things that I just wasn't conscious of. And, um, and, and, and really being intentional about even in trying to understand grace of how do I become judgmental, Right. It was just so hard for me. And so I would actually practice with my therapist because I would say something about somebody and often it would just be people in the news or something, right. It wouldn't even be somebody that I knew. And then, you know, she'd say, well, that's a little judgmental. And I'd say, no, but like, it's true. And she's like, well, try saying it in a non-judgmental way. Like, what's another way to look at that? And I would try again. And she'd be like, still judgmental. <laughs> you know? So it was really like having to rigorously work at this to understand like, oh, I can just say that this behavior is not okay to me without demonizing the person and without turning them into some monster. And recognizing that they're that they're actually doing the best they can. And it's as crazy as that may sound, a lot of people will look at people and say, Well, how could that be the best? It's like, but it is. Nobody's nobody gets up in the morning, and it's like, you know what today I'm gonna do today? I'm gonna be the worst possible version of myself. Right?
0: Yeah, and there's a thread in your book as I was reading it that I I kept coming up in my head. It, it, it was this kind of theme that like. Your ideas don't have to be your identity, mm-hmm. it, you know, and it, it 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 and that can be true for you and for other people, right? Because you know you can separate people's ideas from who they are, and you could do the same thing for yourself. So you don't have to live. So it, it gives yourself some of the space and grace, like you're talking about, to be a complex person, right? And yeah. I, I think that the the more complex and more nuanced we see people the easier it is to be gracious, right? I mean, I feel feel like the ungrace kind of thrives on the tribalism and oversimplification and reductionism and dehumanization.
1: Yeah, A a thousand percent. And I have to say, until you can have grace for yourself, you'll never have grace for other people. So we all have to look at how we treat ourselves. And for a lot of people, including myself, it wasn't very well. And I didn't have any grace for myself at all. When I messed up, I was mean to myself. I was... Critical I had this like inner critic just running commentary in my head So it's not really that surprising that I was doing that to other people uh, Whereas now I don't really have that. It's just doesn't really exist. I don't have I'm Not saying I don't ever have a thought pop into my mind But it's it's noticeable when it happens whereas before it was unconscious. It just was happening and I didn't even notice it It just was like well, isn't it isn't this the way it's supposed to be I am aren't I a horrible person who's who? You know did something terrible? Um, or that didn't even do something terrible that is terrible. And so I think it's, yeah, it's it's recognizing that you you don't usually have the full story. You don't, be, all you know usually is that somebody has done something. It, and, and then they get reduced to that thing or that belief. And people just are way more complex than that. And, and the same thing with our political parties. People think if you tell somebody they're a Democrat that you know who they are. But you don't. Like, there's no way you could possibly know that. There's only two parties. So do you really think that tens of millions of people are all exactly the same because they call themselves Democrats? It's it's not, I mean, even in a parliamentary system, you wouldn't really know, but you would have a little better idea, right, of people would align with a smaller party that more represents their views. But we're pushed into this very binary system where you have to align with a whole bunch of things that you may not agree with because there's something fundamental or basic about the party that you agree with or something that's very important to you, right? But you also may not agree with these other things. So yeah, I think that we have to sort of step back. And again, it's the letting people not be you without being demonized and, and also being curious being curious about why people like don't assume that you know why somebody believes what they believe. Don't assume that, you know, that you have the whole story, like actually express some curiosity around it and let them tell you don't, don't tell them, you know, why they think it.
0: You, you tell, um, a couple, you know, a lot of personal anecdotes in the book, some of which I find just so interesting. Um, one of which is you. You, you went through a divorce, and you were dating, um, this guy Robert, um, yeah. who I'm assuming is your is your uh, partner now. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you, basically, uh, a priest tells you that you have to break up with him until you get an annulment. Yeah. And you're kind of floored and you don't know what to do. And you know, you say it's like, I'm surprised Robert didn't just break up with me. A hundred percent. But it seemed like he was very patient through this. Um,
1: He had a lot of grace.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It seemed like you were the recipient of grace. He
1: had a lot of grace. Yeah. And that was one of the things when I really started thinking about grace was realizing how much grace I've gotten from other people. And frankly, grace that I don't think I would have extended. I would today, but I don't think I would have like the me that started dating him would not have done that. It's just, it it was in fact, when I started thinking about it, it was just mystifying to me. You know, I I was like, how could you have stayed with me? I mean, I was like, I, I was so anxious and so freaked out and was constantly like, maybe we should break up and I don't know. And, you know, and he, you know, it was very stressful for him, but he just said, you know, I just thought you were going to work your way through it. And even though and he also thought it was, I mean, to not put too fine of a point on it, crazy. <laughs> right? Like, and he's a Christian, but he just was like, this is not, this doesn't make any sense. And I just was like so locked into binary thinking. And it and it was making me so miserable.
0: Wow. You know, you know, the other story you tell that I found fascinating is you went to go buy your place in Chelsea and they weren't gonna sell you the place because you work for Fox News. Yeah. And, they, and they basically they assur- the 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 owner, I guess, had to or the or the building manager had to assure people that you were a Democrat, but they apparently didn't believe you.
1: Yeah. They so, you know, in New York there's a co-op board that has to approve. You, you're, you know, when someone sells, like the co-op board has to approve it. And so the sellers thought the co-op board will never approve this. And I guess they talked to the co-op board and the co-op board sort of let them know they wouldn't approve it. And so my uh, real estate agent said, send me an email with all the links to things you've written and appearances that will show that you're, you know, a Democrat. And so I did that. And then they were like, okay, you can, you can move in. And I think that, I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that that was very on trend for what was happening in the country, which is that, you know, we were in the process of really sorting ourselves into these very like minded communities Um and, and which is obviously contributed to polarization, because if you don't know anybody that thinks differently than you, then where do you get your information? What do you form? How do you form your opinions? You get it off of social media and you get it from the news Two places that exist to basically present caricatures of people. Right. So you sit around saying, like, I know it's like me before I went to an evangelical church. I hated evangelicals. I knew all the evangelicals are this and that and the other thing, and I didn't know a single evangelical. <laughs> so, like, you need to know people who think differently than you, um, so that you can depolarize, so that you can give, you know, a, a face to something and say, oh, I actually know that person, and they're actually not pure evil, even though they you know, are belong to the other party.
0: When you were in um the, the in the kind of um more active political circles, um when you're working in the in, in democratic politics, I, I mean my my guess is it, it, it's gotta be exhausting, but it's gotta be an adrenaline rush. I mean do you miss any of the adrenaline stuff from being from doing that kind of work um Mm -mm. at the level of intent you you don't miss it at all
1: I don't it was great for that period in my life but to me it is really a young person's game it's not once you're over 40 or so I just feel like it's I don't know I've sort of shifted into a place where I want more control over my life. I want more control over my schedule. I, you know, I mean, it's not like I live a stress-free life after all I am on TV. <laughs> um, but it's it's not the same uh as when you're in working in politics. I mean, I worked in the Clinton administration, you know, I worked on campaigns where it's just your life 24-7. It's, you know, you just and when you're when you're young, that's really exciting and it's really fun. But it's, you know, I, I need more space in my life for other things. And, and so I think it's, yeah, it's just not something I don't, I, I, it's hard to imagine I would ever go back into that, into that world.
0: What, what were the Clintons like to work with?
1: Well, I mean, he was president, so it's not like I was really hanging out with him. Um, he, you know, I was working in one of the offices um, in the White House called the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And that well, it's in the executive office you know, and they, um, and so I hardly ever saw the president. I mean, other than when I'd be with my boss, who was a cabinet member. So it wasn't, it was just more, I would say it's more like, what was it like to work in the Clinton administration? And and it was, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, my closest friends are still from that time. And it was kind of like, it was almost like being in college, right? It's that you're like surrounded by, People who share your same values and, and support the same things and you're working for the same thing every day. And so I think, you know, for any young person who's interested in politics, I highly, highly recommend it. I mean, it was just was an inc- I loved going to work. I just loved seeing, you know, my colleagues and I, I got because I was working in the trade office. I got to travel all over the world um, and it was a, just incredible um, education and, and experience.
0: I'm curious when you look out at our culture today where do you see parables of grace where do you see stories of grace enacted when you when you look out in the cultural landscape are there particular people or movements that you see and think yeah that it gives you hope that there really is still grace in the world
1: I think that's like I think I see it more on in like individual level I don't feel like we see it a lot if you look again, on social media, or you look at the news where we're getting most of our information. I the just,
0: stories don't sell, right?
1: Yeah. It's not what activates your little, you know, your brain. It's not what activates your lizard brain. And so I don't think we we generally get to see a lot of that. And so, but I do think in people's, I mean, I say in the opening of the book, you know, it is, Grace is, you know, it's basically the lubricant of life. Without it, we wouldn't have relationships right? It it would be impossible. Every relationship that we have, if we're being honest, only exists because we're giving each other grace, because we're all screwing up all the time. And we we have to be with people who are going to say, you know, okay, I'm going to cut you some slack there. And, but it kind of, we tend to just do it for the people that are in our our orbit and it gets much harder to do it when it's somebody who's not only not in your orbit, but actually may even belong to the quote unquote other side. Right. It's, and even when I was writing this book, some of my friends would say like, well, yeah, I mean, I see like giving grace to, you know, like if if another person who's like like a liberal and they mess up and they say something they shouldn't say, I mean, we basically agree on everything and we'll just give them grace for that mistake. And it's like, that's not grace. If you're if you're calculating why you're giving it to them that's not unmerited favor that's forgiveness maybe I, I don't I don't know what you would call it exactly but it's not grace Gr- Grace is for the person that is is driving you nuts Grace is for the person who you think is really problematic Grace is for the person that you may even hate right and so it's that's where I feel if we could, expand it out, uh, it would be better for our culture, and it would be better for us, for ourselves also. It's, grace is something that, you know, I say like, graces aren't the original self-care. It is a way to take care of yourself. It is a way to not get entangled with other people's stories and behavior, and just be very clear about, you know, what you're okay with and what you're not okay with, but without going that extra step of, of demonizing the person.
0: Do you think, given sort of your more recent life experience and your drinking in deeply from the wells of grace and writing this book, do you think if you were at Fox News now, those relationships would be different?
1: I would not be at Fox News now.
0: Oh wow! So you yeah. just yeah you no would way. you just wouldn't even go there.
1: No. So I don't think. I mean, I think that if for some reason I was there, I would I would use that to to keep myself emotionally healthy and the way I talk about in the book, having to interact with some Trump supporters at CNN, where I did create boundaries with them so that I could... Because what boundaries help you do is they keep you from being resentful. When you don't use boundaries, you, you resent people. So when you just give somebody access to you, like, for example, the Trump supporter who sits across from me in the green room is saying all sorts of things that are really upsetting to me, and I never tell them, please... Please stop telling me these things. And then I resent them, and then it's, and then I start to demonize them. That's what happens. And so instead, I just say, "Hey, I don't talk to you about these things unless we're on air." You know that that's that's my boundary, and so I'm able to not go that extra step of hating them and demonizing them. So if I was still at Fox, which is unimaginable to me, like I honestly, I'd work at Starbucks before I would work there. So um, because of of what is going on there. And, and and even when I left honestly I was like i got i have to go it's you know it, once once the trump era started I, I just was like this is not i can't be here um and so because it was becoming um it was beco- it was becoming more toxic it was already pretty toxic for me I think I would have left anyway but it was um you know I was starting to feel sort of subtle pressure to not be so critical of Trump. And and I could see the writing on the wall. And so I just was like, I, Emily, I gotta leave. I gotta go somewhere else. Um. So yeah, there's just no, that, like when I say in the book, figure out what your no is, that would be my no. Like I'm just a no to them.
0: Yeah, because otherwise if you don't know know your no, you, it, 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 you can get led into places of, of what you would call ungrace, I guess.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. Like I don't need to go any further, me saying that I think that they that what they're doing right now is pretty toxic is not a lack of grace. And that's the thing. People get very confused about that. It's like well, you said something that was critical. It's like, okay, I mean, MLK said that, you know, all sorts of things about you know, racism in our country, like was that not grace? I don't understand. <laughs> you know, it's like that's there's a real misunderstanding that a lot of times people say I'm not having grace when I say something they don't like. And it's like, no,
0: that's- and doesn't grace presuppose like almost violation? I mean grace suppose yeah, presupposes the need for it that, yeah. that there's a problem, right that there's yeah. ambiguity and right and, and, and fallibility in things and problems
1: right exactly but but it, it but it's not it's just a category mistake when people say you said something critical about Fox News that's not grace. It's like that just doesn't have anything to do with grace it would it would be a lack of grace if i said and therefore they are all rotten to the core <laughs> no redeeming qualities right that then you're like going an extra step of like you're not allowing for you know the you're not allowing for the fact that they're not necessarily horrible human beings right you're just saying i just am naming this behavior saying i find this behavior toxic and it's um and divisive. So, um, yeah. And so I think people have to understand that, that it's, it's not about, and the other thing I have to say is in having grace for myself, it's like, I don't have to be perfect. Like I'm not saying I'm never going to say something that lacks grace. Like that's ridiculous. you know. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, okay. I mean, if I'm like doing 50% better than I'm, like, I'm like a completely different person <laughs> than I was. So so I think we have to have grace for ourselves as well and it not become this thing of like, because you had a bad day and you said something that you shouldn't have said, then, you know, I think you if you say something you shouldn't have said, you, sh- you should you should say that, right? You should say, you know what? I didn't really say that the way I, it should have come out. I probably should have said it this way. Um, but you have to be able to, um, that's why I have Speak Your Truth in the subtitle. I think it's important that people know that, uh, you know, being a person who practices grace does not mean that you can't say hard things or that you can't name, you know, hard things. You can't say something is racist, for example, right? Like that's not, that's not a lack of grace. Um, one of the theologians that I interviewed, that I quoted in the book. And I always go back to this in my mind as well, is that having grace is seeing the possibilities. It's always recognizing the possibility, even as he says, even with a person that you may feel you hate, you can still see the possibility in that person. You you know, you still can see the humanity in that person. And, and that's how I feel. You know, that's how I feel, even as I'm talking about Fox news, like I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't see the possibility there or that I don't see the humanity and the people who are doing these things.
0: Well, Kirsten, you certainly have um, spoken your truth in this book. And I, I really, it's a great book and thanks for writing it. And thanks. i really appreciate the you graciously I'm spending <laughs> some time talking with me about it. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words about the book.
0: <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure. for listening to this episode of give and take if you like what you've heard here please do a few things for me go share about this episode in itunes write a review give it a rating share the love and goodness or go on social media share a link to the episode on twitter or facebook or instagram please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here thanks again thanks again for listening to this episode of give and take and until next time friends fare thee well